What is your response to something new? Are you what they call an early adopter? Or do you wait until whatever is new sticks? Or do you resist change altogether? Chances are, your answer to that question is different in different contexts. But how do we respond when God invites us by His Spirit into something new? Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly message from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and we hope that the Holy Spirit speaks clearly to you as you listen to this message today. This week we conclude our brief sermon series entitled All Things New, in which we explore the new things that Jesus introduces as told to us in John's Gospel. In this sermon, the second of three preached this week, Matt Willis, our Youth and Young Adults Coordinator, gets us thinking about how we respond to the new things God has for us, using the reactions to Jesus in John 7 as a point of reflection. Good morning, everyone. As it says, we're in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37. On the last day and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Good morning, and welcome to church on this fine Sunday morning. Uh, My name is Matt. I lead our youth and our young adults ministries here at GBC. And I don't know about you, but when I first read that passage, I found it outrageously abrupt, don't you think? I mean, it's only seven passages, and in these seven um, verses, sorry, Uh, Jesus shows up to a festival, is hanging out in the temple amongst all of the celebrations. He gets up, makes this incredibly profound declaration, a metaphorical mic drop, so to speak, and then leaves everyone in a bit of a scurry, trying to figure out what it all means and really who the heck this Jesus guy really is. Everything happens just so fast that it leaves me with a little bit of whiplash. (laughs) But I don't want to fall into the trap of assuming that short means simple. Um, Because what is happening in these seven verses actually packs a huge punch, not only for the people who heard it in the first hand back then, but for us today. And so with that in mind, it seems only appropriate that we all just delve straight into the passage and draw out all the goodies that it's got in store for us. So if you've got your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to John 7. We'll start in verse 37, where it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I read the scriptures and it mentions biblical festivals and religious traditions and the social context, I have a tendency of kind of 
skimming over that bit because I just figure it doesn't hold that much significance for me or for us today. But the festival which is being celebrated at this time in John's Gospel actually plays a pretty meaningful backdrop to what is about to unfold. It's ironic, almost comical, that this should be the festival being celebrated when Jesus chooses to make this huge statement about himself. And I'll explain why. There were three great festivals throughout the religious calendar, which would see Jewish pilgrims make their way to Jerusalem to worship and participate in the festivities. They were Pentecost, the Passover, and the Festival of Tabernacles, which is what is being celebrated here in chapter 7. And the Festival of the Tabernacles was immensely popular. It lasted for several days, and it was considered the most holiest and the greatest of the Jewish feasts. It marked the conclusion of the annual cycle of religious festivals. It was a harvest festival, and it was about recalling on God's provision during Israel's time wandering throughout the wilderness. And so to symbolize this, each day there would be a water-pouring ceremony at the altar in the temple, referring to the water that had been sent down from heaven to the Israelites when they were in the desert. But this festival wasn't just about reflecting on the past. It had kind of built this idea that the hope that the Israelites had in God back then was still available in the present. And so it had also become a feast that was associated with an eschatological hope, a future hope of what God was going to be doing. So there was an element of reflecting on what God had done for his people in the past, but there was also an element of hope of what he would do in the future. Are you starting to see the irony yet? The hope that they are drinking to, that they are reveling in the future arrival of, that hope has literally just walked into the room. And yet, they don't necessarily see that. And I find that curious, and it makes me wonder why. This whole idea of the festivals of tabernacles kind of got me thinking about the festivals that we celebrate today. And the one that I think fits most closely to what is being celebrated in John's Gospel here in chapter 7 is New Year's Day. Think about it. There is a sense of hope that comes with January 1, isn't there? I don't know what it is. Just the fact that it's January 1, it's the new year. With the new year comes a desire to create a new me. We have such a sense of hope for the future year ahead, for growth and for transformation. We make resolutions around the idea of a hope in something new, of becoming something new, of experiencing something new. But what normally happens to all those hopes and dreams, all those resolutions that we tell ourselves, this is the year, we break them, don't we? And if you're anything like me, you normally break them January 2nd, January 3rd, if it's a good year. Why? Because despite the fact that it's January 1, life continues on as it always has done. We fall back into our routines and our habits, and we wait until next year to create the new. And I wonder if it was the same for the Jews celebrating this festival of tabernacles. They were celebrating a hope for the future, but after this festival ended, they would probably just start preparing for the next celebration, wouldn't they? Falling into routine and habit waiting for the next festival of tabernacles until they'd be reminded and reflect on the hope that they had in God. A hope 
that, it's, that seems to be more of a sentiment than something tangible that they were actively seeking out. And it's in this space that Jesus stands up and makes his huge and bold declaration. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, he says. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What is it that is happening around Jesus that stirs up such an impassioned proclamation? Jesus is saying, the new hope has arrived. Jesus is on the scene. He's laying everything out on the table. The invitation is here and it is available. Jesus is claiming to be the source of the blessings anticipated by this very feast that they are all at. What Jesus is saying is that he is the ultimate source of the Spirit, and therefore no one is able to make a personal claim to having the Spirit independent of their relationship with Jesus. Jesus is appealing for all to come to him because he understands the truth that the only way that God's people will receive his Holy Spirit is through Jesus himself. And John even clarifies this for us in verse 39, where he explains that the Spirit had yet been given and would only become available once Jesus had been glorified through his resurrection and ascension. The message is clear. Jesus fulfills the symbolism of the Festival of Tabernacles. He brings to fruition what is only symbolic throughout all of these celebrations that the Jews are participating in, in the water-pouring ceremonies that celebrated the abundance of God's blessings, in the provision and reminiscence of God's provision for his people in the wilderness. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. The new is here. I just want you to visualize that just for a moment and understand just how deeply moving that would have been. To have the Savior, the anticipated Messiah, standing in the temple amongst the crowds of pilgrims, probably in close proximity to the altar where the water was being poured each day, calling all to come to him and receive the life-giving blessing of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, you think this is a good time? I've got a better party going on. You think this is good? Wait till you see what I have in store for you. It offers what this festival only hopes for. And the cool thing is I've got an unlimited guest list, an unlimited amount of invites, and all you have to do is come up to me and ask. I've got the keys and I will let you in. Jesus is saying without a shadow of a doubt that he is the newness that they had all been hoping for, waiting for, that they were celebrating. He's giving them the answers to all of their questions. He lays it out so clearly. And how does the crowd respond? Well, it says in verse 43 that thus the people were divided because of Jesus. How is it that the people in the crowd are still left wondering about who Jesus is after a statement like that? And I think it's because they were comfortable to hold on to the hope of something new, but they weren't ready to experience the fulfillment of God's plan to make all things new. We see from this passage that there were varying degrees of understanding regarding who Jesus is after he made this statement. There were those who would have considered him 
a blasphemer. You know, it says that they wanted to seize him. They were so offended. There was such uproar at what he was saying. They wanted to arrest him because of these claims. And we know that in time, they actually will do that. They didn't just not understand what Jesus was saying, but they, re- they rejected it entirely. Then there were those who thought of Jesus as a prophet. And that was probably due to the fact that his claim to be the giver of living water reminded them of Moses giving water from the rock, a story that would have been fresh in all of their minds considering the festival that they're currently attending. And as many of them would have known the Old Testament scriptures well, as all good Jews did back then, They would also have had the echoes of Moses' prophecy regarding a prophet like me in the back of their head. And then there were the people who saw Jesus for who he truly is, the Messiah, the Savior, the people who started to see the pattern, started to put the pieces together, that what Jesus was speaking about here and also throughout his ministry as a whole was all in fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise. But even then, they struggle to fully grasp it, don't they? We see that they kind of go into this weird argument about Jesus' birthplace. And that was because it had long been expected that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, that they would be from the line of David, which Jesus was. That just wasn't common knowledge yet. Another beautiful piece of irony in this story, I think. But not only that, that the idea that anyone of significance could possibly come from Galilee, where they all thought Jesus had come from. The idea that anyone of significance would come from Galilee was laughable. It wasn't a highly thought of place. It wasn't a highly sought after place. It would have a low rating on realestate.com. And so we see that even the smallest question can cause people to lose sight of what is right there in front of them. This is how the people responded to the newness that Jesus was offering them back then. And I wonder, is it all that different for us now? Um, A number of years ago, I watched a seminar by an American pastor named Andy Stanley. And the topic that he was talking on was how we as the church, at an organizational level, need to be seeking out, identifying, and then nurturing new ways of doing church in order to grow. And he said something that really stuck with me, so much so that when I read this passage, it was the first thing that popped into my head. And he said this, he said, our responsibility as the church is to create a culture that recognizes rather than resists change. I'll say that again. Our responsibility as the church is to create a culture that recognizes rather than resists change. Now, I understand that when Andy Stanley said this, he was talking practically about how the church functions as an organization. You know, what are the new opportunities the church can take in order to engage the world? But I think that his challenge to be a people who recognize change can actually apply to the new hope that we have in Jesus and the new ways in which we experience a relationship with God through his Holy Spirit. Because the invitation that Jesus is speaking of here in chapter 7 is as much for us as it was for the Jews back then. And we too need to make a response to it. And I fear that too often when it comes to faith, we can fall into the same trap that the Jews did with their festivals. I mean, faith is filled with a new hope, yes. 
a hope that we worship to, a hope that we pray for, a hope that we talk about, that we speak about, that we declare. But I wonder if at times we too can become comfortable with the sentiment of a new hope and at times actually stop seeking out the opportunities to experience its fulfillment each and every day. Because, I mean, I know I do. I just find it so interesting how diverse the responses to Jesus are, how there are varying levels of understanding about who he is and what he is seeking to achieve. Even when he's being so clear, there are the people who get it, the people who are confused by it, and the people who reject it. And it would be so easy for us to put ourselves in the first category, wouldn't it? As people who know the whole story, who know who Jesus is, who understand his purpose. But the truth is, the newness that comes from God, the newness that comes through Jesus, the newness that we receive through the Holy Spirit, it's not a one-hit wonder, is it? It's not one moment and then everything is done. Faith is a journey. It is ongoing. It is experiencing new ways of relating with God. It is being open to new growth and a transformed life. It is taking up new opportunities to participate in his mission. And so when it comes to our response to the new things that come from faith, we need to understand that we are not one or the other all the time. We're not just going to be someone who gets it, and then that means we get everything, or confused by it, or reject it. Because with each new thing that God is inviting us into, we are challenged to make a response to each and every one of them. And so we are not one or the other, but rather we can be all of them, each of them, at different times. Because sometimes we will get it, but then other times we won't. And I think that this is where the challenge lies for each and every one of us. Because surely, more often than not, we want to be the people who get it when we're presented with something new from God. Surely, as followers of Jesus, that's what we're here for. And so if that's that's so, then we have a responsibility to create a culture that recognizes rather than resists all the new things that come from God. So how do we do that? How do we ensure that we are a people who not only hope for the newness that comes from God, but that we take hold of it when we find it? Well, in his seminar, Andy Stanley had three points that I think can help all of us be people who actually live in the newness of Jesus. And his first point was that we need to be a student. We all have our own ways that we have found we best connect with and relate to our Heavenly Father, and that is good. I love the fact that for some, it's a quiet prayer, while for others, it's obnoxiously loud worship music. That for some, it's being alone in the Word, and for others, it's being in a group setting, unpacking the Word. This is an incredible display of just how much God knows each and every one of us so intimately that he would reveal himself so diversely in just the way that we need. But the trap can be that we get comfortable with what we know and we stop seeking out and learning of new ways in which we can connect with God and grow. Um, As you heard, we went to state youth camp a couple of weeks ago 
33 different Baptist youth ministries from around the state, as far north as Tweed Heads, as far south as Milton, Ulladulla, Wagga Wagga, and everything in between. And so you get that many youth groups together from all different Baptist churches, and you put them in a tent together. You are going to get some pretty diverse mix. Am I right? You're going to have a diversity of people who connect with and experience God in a multitude of different ways. And what we've seen as a team each and every year is that rather than just sticking to what they know, our youth put themselves out there and take the opportunity to learn from anyone and everyone. They explore the different ways of worship, the different ways to pray, the different ways in which God speaks to them and the different ways in which they can listen to God. And it's in those moments that we as a leadership team have seen our young people experience a newness in their relationship with God year in and year out. And it's because they are willing to learn. We need to become students We need to step out of our comfort zone and learn from one another. We need to explore something different, experience something different, because when we do, then that hope of something new, it becomes more than just a sentiment, and it becomes something that we are actively seeking out, and we are far more likely to find it then. His second point is we need to replace how with wow. I can be, admittedly, a very pragmatic person. I think it frustrates my wife at times, but she's outrageously gracious. When I'm faced with something new, I like to question every little bit of it. I like to test it, I like to create a meticulous plan, and I like to put it in place. It makes me feel safe, it makes me feel in control. And at times, that can be a very helpful approach. But I fear that it can be an unhelpful one when it comes to faith. If this is our approach when God challenges us with something new, opens up a new opportunity, or reveals himself in a new way, we can too often have the knee-jerk reaction to ask the question, but how? How is this for me? How is this going to look? How does this work? How, how, how? And then, either intentionally or not, we have taken this new thing, this incredible thing, this thing from the Spirit of God, and we have questioned it to death. We question it so much that by the end, we have given ourselves enough justification to just put the whole thing to rest. And so we need to start replacing how with wow. Our response to the newness of what God has on offer should not be to question it, but it should be to lean into it with awe and wonder at what God is doing in us and around us. This is the God who created the universe. Surely we should be expecting some creativity when it comes to Him revealing new things to us in the way that He connects with us, teaches us, challenges us. We should expect more than just the same old, same old. We should expect more than just routine and ritual. We should be expecting something new all day, every day. And when we finally see it, when it is finally in front of us, rather than question it, we should take hold of it with both hands, strap in for the ride, and see the incredible new places that God is going to take us. Amen. Yes, thank you. I'll take that. 
Andy Stanley had one last point, the third point. I'm going to wrap up with this. We need to keep our eyes and our minds wide open. Faith needs to be more than just sentiment. It needs to be expectant. Faith is not built on routine. It is built on relationship. Our journey of faith is not just about what we already know, but about what we are yet to learn. It doesn't matter how far along your journey of faith you are, there is always something new for you to experience, something new that the Spirit is revealing, something new that Jesus is calling you into, something new in your relationship with our Heavenly Father. There is always something new, something yet found, yet to be explored, yet to be embraced. But when we do find it, it will continue the work that God has been doing in us to make us new. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is what the living water through Christ offers each and every one of us. That is what we should be yearning for, looking for, waiting for. Jesus is offering us something new, always and in every way. He's offering something new through his spirit. And we need to learn to shake off the things that we know, shake off the things that we think we've understood, the, our routine and our ideas of what it should look like. And we need to open up our eyes and our minds to the possibility that there is more out there. And so let's be expectant of the more with our eyes and our minds wide open to what God is doing. So that when something new comes our way, we will be the people who get it and less like the people who were confused by it or reject it. Because God is making all things new through Jesus Christ. God is inviting us to see it, but not only to see it, but to embrace it and to live it because he wants us, each and every one of us, to be the newness that he is bringing into the world. And we should want that too. Amen? Okay. I'm going to... Thanks. Um, I'll take it. Um, I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to continue in a time of worship. And we're going to have our prayer team down the front as well. If you want to pray about something, anything, something out of today, out of your week, your month, your year the good, the bad, the ugly, we want to journey with you in that and pray for you in that space. But um, as we kind of start in a time of worship, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you are making all things new. Um, Lord, you are restoring the earth. You are restoring us from the brokenness that sin created. Um, and you are restoring us into new creations where we can live in harmony and in love and in grace with you, Lord. Um, Father, I just, I confess that at times I don't look for the new. Um, I get comfortable with what I know. Um, but Lord, I pray that you can challenge each and every one of us to have eyes wide open, that we can recognize the new when it is before us and that we grab it, Lord, with a zeal and a passion that sees change, not only in us, but in those around us, in the world around us, in the community. Lord, let your reach be limitless in the newness that you were bringing in this world. And Father, let us be your hands and feet in that work. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. 
So what is your response to the new? Do you embrace it? Are you confused by it? Or do you resist it? If we're just talking about some new gadget or something like that, the consequences aren't that big. But when it's something that God is inviting us into, it's a different story. Let's not be content with where we are, but keep our hearts and minds open to all that God has for us. Is there someone you know who needs to hear this message too? If so, why not share it with them and see what God does to that. As always, we'd love to hear from you as you hear and respond to the invitation of God. You can find us on Facebook or visit our website at guymebaptist.org.au. May your eyes and ears be open and your heart soft to the invitation of the Spirit to join in God's renewing work in Jesus. God bless.